Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to Small Business Digest Radio. My name is Don Mazzella, and I am your host for a program devoted to identifying strategies and suggestions to help small business managers increase profits, add sales, better manage cash flow, improve employee management, and streamline operations. Our guests are other entrepreneurs and experts offering their solutions to the problems and opportunities facing small business leaders. Our aim in each program is to provide one or two thought-provoking ideas or suggestions. So follow us on Twitter at hashtag 2SBDigest or at our website at www.smallbusinessdigest.net. You know, I'm particularly happy tonight. Uh, the nice thing about my job is I get bo- interesting books uh, across my desk just about every day. But uh, I, I came across a really interesting book. Uh, it's My Company Too, which I love the title of. Uh, and uh, I invited Tom Water, who's the, uh, who's the author of it and who runs a company that's, uh, again, uh, interesting, and I'll let him tell you all about it. So uh, without further ado, Tom, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Don. It's, a, it's an honor to be on Small Business Digest Radio, and thank you for having me with you tonight. Well, you know, as we always do, we ask our guests a little bit about your personal background before we get into anything else. So, Tom, the floor is yours. Uh, my business career started in 1971 when I opened up my first business. It was a fast food restaurant in the Chicago area, and since 1971, I've started 30 businesses or co-founded 30 businesses and bought three. The last seven businesses were co-founded, and they were the ideas of our staff because they were truly engaged in what our organization stood for and our organization's principles, and they had ideas on how uh, they could start satellite companies. So... um, I've been a serial entrepreneur, a speaker, and uh, now an author, and uh, I've lived a very exciting life because that one minute of it has been a day of work, but a day of fun working with great people. Well, that's interesting. What made you decide to write a book? Well, last half, and what's the title of the book? Well, let's do the background on the book first. Uh, our company had a cultural revolution in 2005. Uh, We had moved our catering business from a 5,000-square-foot building to a 25,000-square-foot building. And I have two brothers who are alpha males like myself. There were 11 in our family, 11 children. And we were having territorial battles. And two young people came to my desk the morning of November 28th of 2005, a day that will live forever in infamy in my mind. Uh, And they challenged me. They said, either you change or we're leaving. And I have, I'm the oldest brother, so I've always been in charge. And I brought my brothers on to be my partners in 1984 after I'd been in business for a while. And uh, I turned to these two young people and I said, change what? And they said, well, we don't want command and control anymore. 
and that's the only type of leadership I understood was command and control. My father was in World War II, an Army sergeant, and he was a senior executive at the Fortune 50 company and had a very prestigious position, and I understood command and control, but I did not have a clue how I could change that. And the the young man who was 23 said, well, for 35 years or whatever, command and control has worked for you, but it doesn't work for us and it doesn't work for our generation. So I said, well, what do you want me to do? And they said, we'd like an employee-generated, an employee-created culture that we design ourselves. And that led to reading the book Good to Great by Jim Collins in Spanish and English throughout our organization. And our teams devised our core values and our culture. And because of that culture and applying organizational behavior, the principal the principal idea of organizational behavior is antecedents lead to behaviors which lead to consequences. And our core values, our culture statement, become the, became the antecedent and how we enforced it and how we made it come to life. And there was a lot that went into that. Edgar Schein did some great studies on how to make a culture become part of an organization. But we found behaviors, enforcing behaviors and practicing behaviors, the consequences were phenomenal. Our employee engagement before this change was about 50%, and today it's at 98%, which is just a phenomenal increase. So Jamie, the young lady who was 22 at the time, who has now started two companies, and she's uh, doing wonderful with her own companies, but uh, she's still tied in with our tasty caterer and her family of businesses. Um, Jamie started applying for awards, Don, and we won multiple awards, uh, many awards. Best place to work in the state of Illinois, Wall Street Journal's best small workplace, uh, Inc. Magazine's best small workplace in the country. Um, we won awards for our industry, best caterer in the United States by Catering Magazine and Cater Source Magazine. And then we won, to me, the ultimate prize, which was March of this year, the American Psychological Association named Tasty Catering the psychologically healthiest workplace in the United States in a small for-profit business. So their cultural revolution uh, was phenomenal, how it changed what we did, and change management is very difficult. And that led to the title of the book. There's uh, Our culture statement is written everywhere in our organization, every major room, every main room has the culture statement, and it's lit up with lights, and it's in every cube. And before meetings, any meeting of three people to five people, we recite the complete culture statement. Now, Shine is very big, Edgar Shine is very big on having artifacts of the culture throughout the organization, and then the espoused values, and then the assumptions. How does it lead to an assumed way of living? So we did. Uh, we repeat the core values, and it becomes conscious, some subconscious, then subliminal. So the behavior is guided by the culture. And uh, so one day, I was uh, in the back of the warehouse, and I heard a crew leader raising his voice. A college man loading trucks to go out on events raised his voice with the summertime high school students. And I started to walk to that area because we we don't raise voices and it's just not acceptable behavior. And in front of me was a young culinarian, Hugo Tellus Rios, and uh, he walked up to the college crew leader. And there's you know an implied caste system because you know he's a college student and you're just a entry level culinarian. And he called out the college student and he said, "Hey, number two, 
And number two, our core value number two is treat all with respect. And the crew leader looked up and read the core value, and he turned to his employees as he was taught in his training sessions. When you're wrong, promptly admit it. And he said, I apologize. It's my fault. I didn't clearly identify which truck we need to reload the trucks, pull everything out, we'll reposition them. One truck was being sent to Wisconsin, and one was going to Indiana, and one had food for approximately 200, and the other one had 400. So it would have been a, a nightmare on the event. So I walked around the corner, and I caught up to Hugo with a $20 bill in my hand, and I shook his hand, and I said, Hugo, thank you very much. That was very nice of you. He looked at the $20 bill, and he gave it back to me. He said, Tomas, it's my company, too. And that's where the title of the book came from. Ooh, that's very interesting. Well, before we go further, what happened to the uh, – there were two people. We know what happened to one. What happened to the other, uh, the, the man that came to you? Well, the man has now replaced me. Uh, last year, we decided to follow, uh, do a complete, uh, a complete change again to do creative destruction and to change the organization. And uh, I'm an older guy, and I realized that it was time to start training the replacement actively. And we asked our leadership team, which is comprised of the CEOs of all the companies as well as Tasty Catering's uh, top team leaders. Uh, who they wanted to replace me, internal or external. And the vote came back that they wanted it from someone from inside that understood our culture. And then we had a, a, a secret vote, a ballot, a write-in ballot, who who should replace Tom, and it was Tim. It was the 23-year-old young man in 2005 who they decided should replace me. So he is now my replacement. He is uh, the head of... Uh, all of our company. He's now recognized. Uh, he doesn't really have a title. He's CFO of Tasty Catering. I'm the chief culture officer, but he's the CEO, co-founder, or CFO of all of our companies that operate today. And uh, he's a natural leader, and he's done a great job of uh, doing the business side of the business. He doesn't particularly get into the product side of the businesses, but he focuses on the business side, working with each company on the business side. So he's 32, 33 years old now, and, uh, you know, I knew at that time, Don, I'd had probably 10,000 employees in my life. I knew these two young people were two of the best I'd ever seen, ever met, and I knew them since they were 15 years old. They had been working in our company. They started off in high school. While they were in college, they would work part-time for us, and I knew that they had success stamped right on their forehead. They just needed the responsibility. Well, it takes a lot. Let's, so you're transitioning out of the business now. Um, yes, I'm transitioning out of the day-to-day -day activities of the business. As chief culture officer, I focus on the behaviors. You know, the culture is in place, and I make sure I focus on the people, the emotional issues within the people of the organizations. Uh, someone's going through a divorce. Someone's had a car accident. Uh, if there's a disruptor that exists, I try to remove the disruptors because a great way to increase employee engagement is to focus on disruptors. Uh, according to the Institute of Mental Health and Wellness, we have 60,000 thoughts a day, and between 6 and 8% of those thoughts the average organization receives from their employees. And employee engagement is the emotional attachment that an employee has to an organization's values, vision, and mission, which results in higher discretionary thinking. 
So we've proven scientifically with the help of two of my co-authors who are academics and have done extensive research and have written academic books, we did evidence-based research and found out that by removing disruptors in the workplace, you can actually increase the engagement of the employee. And if we at Tasty Catering has 100 employees, and if I can go from 6 to 8% to 10 to 12% of their discretionary thoughts, that would give us a quarter of a million or 240,000 more thoughts per day. Uh, and hopefully they would be positive because we remove all the negativity. We take negative energy and turn it into positive energy. There's methodologies to do that. And uh, so my focus is on the emotional side, just being the grand patriarch of the companies and talking to people about issues. And because I am older and, uh, you know, it's like talking to their grandfather for most people, Dad, you know. I'm no longer uh, seen as a threat because I'm just a nice old guy, I guess. But um, So my focus, again, is on the emotional part, the emotional interactions within the organization. Well, uh, I have two questions, so I don't forget them. The first one, how did you move from the uh, tyrannical person that you were into the, the, the good godfather you are now? And the second question is, how do you identify disruptors? Okay. Um, well, I don't, if I could back up time, I was about, as in my mid-50s when they told me to change or else, and I was starting succession planning, and I realized, I'd just gone through a valuation process and realized that my business was worth maybe one-tenth of what I thought it was because there was no sustainability. It was all built around me as the owner, me as the leader, and my brothers. And if the three of us got hit by the proverbial bust, there'd be zero value. And as I looked at other great companies, companies that were successful and sustainable, they had um, they had integrated with younger generations. So I had started to study generation integration, and I realized that in 2010 it was projected that millennials would replace boomers as the largest generation in the workforce, and that 2011 women would replace men as the largest gender in the workforce. And it became very apparent to me that if I wanted this to be sustainable, because we deal in a retail business, we sell to people who buy our services, um, I needed to have younger people buying into the company. I also understood, you know, I, I knew, I've listened to Frank Sinatra on 78, 45 RPM records, 33 RPM records, uh, compact discs, cassettes, 8-tracks. I mean, I've now I'm into iPods and Pandora, I mean, Don, how much technology can I learn? I've, I've just decided to stop learning technology. So I realized my limitations on knowledge, understanding the marketplace, was rapidly diminishing as my wisdom increased. The emotional intelligence leads to increased wisdom. So I was vulnerable. I was frightened. I was thinking, all my life I've invested in the businesses that I had at that time, but there is no value to them. I have no retirement plan because I had a small 401k, but I realized these were my, this was my exit strategy. I looked at those two, and I don't know if it was divine intervention or what it was, but I just said, here's my hope. And the more responsibility I gave them as the change, the more they, they took that responsibility, and the more they flourished with the responsibility, and the more the employees in the company responded because they realized they were creating their own company. And uh, there took a few 
moments, the tipping points, Malcolm Gladwell's tipping points, when I got called out on not following the culture, when I called out for raising my voice, not treating others with respect, when people called, said to me, Tom, is this number two? I had to apologize. It it sent a, a signal, a message that, yes, indeed, this is the way we're going to change. So it it actually became pretty easy after the first six or eight months. But I had to have faith in somebody, and I had a lot of faith in these these two people. I realized that you know I could have a stroke, I could have a heart attack, something could happen to me, and there would be 60 families that would be out of work, that could potentially be out of work. So as a responsible leader, let's try something different. Now I, I don't know, you know, there was a lot of there was a lot of good fortune in making that movement, but it worked, and that's part of the impetus about writing the book was to find out what it was that led great sustainable smaller companies what made them change and uh, we found out we thought it might be leadership we might thought of dr ken thompson uh one of the authors is a malcolm baldridge senior examiner so he knows systems and processes he worked uh helping build the walmart retail institute he's done a lot of work on systems and processes and Dr. Ray Benedetto did his doctoral dissertation on tasty catering, and it was titled An Ethnographic Study of Culture in a Small Workplace. And um, he understood ethnographic study of culture. That's where you study culture at a very deep level. And I just realized that it was time to change, and it, it was for the better, and it has worked out to be the be- for the better. Now, your second question was about disruptors. How do we identify disruptors? We have a good to great meeting, the third Monday of every month, and uh, an agenda goes out in advance, two weeks in advance, and one member from each team, each team discusses the agenda, and the good to great council actually establishes an annual agenda, and every May we talk, we focus on disruptors, major disruptors, so we do a strategic and a tactical question of the month. Uh, Should we move into this field, this revenue stream, should we create a different revenue stream, so all of our employees have their say, but not necessarily their way. So each team will discuss the upcoming Good to Great meeting, and uh, the representative that's most vocal or most passionate about it or hasn't been in a meeting for a long time will come into the meeting. And everybody has an equal vote at that meeting, and only one owner can be in the meeting. So I was in this meeting in May of last year when Disruptor was being discussed, And every team brought in their major disruptors, things that were holding them back from reaching self-efficacy, self-actualization. And an example was the door from the operations room to the sales office. One girl, one young lady had her back to it, and every time it opened and shut, it would disrupt her thinking. And she came in representing her team, Don, and she said, that blankety-blank door is driving me crazy. I can't think. So that night, my brother put a piece of tape on the door the door latch, and he put a new door closer in. The next day, we ordered the office architecture firm to change the office structure so her she could face towards the door but put high cubes, partitions, so she would be able to focus on her sales and her sales over the next three months was the proverbial hockey stick. It uh, it continued to soar, and then it went straight up. Her sales quadrupled within probably 90 days, maybe less, because she was able to focus her thinking. All of her thoughts were positive then instead of negative. 
So that's removing a disruptor. Another thing that we do is we have an energy board where people come in in the morning and they take a they, they take a symbol, and mine is a heart, and they have, there's an energy that rates from 0 to 10, and it has a nuclear power plant on one side, and the light bulbs get brighter as it goes up to number 10. And you put your your symbol where your energy is. And we have one lady in, in the organization who used to be an HR director at a major company who's now a mom only working part-time, and she checks that board every day. And she is like our chief culture officer in training, and she will find out who's in the low end of that and find out why that is. And she came to me at one point last winter and said, Kristen's energy is really low. Uh, she was up all night with her two boys. They both had fevers and coughs and colds, and she's just exhausted. I said, well, let's send her home with pages. Send her home because first comes God, then comes family. God, your higher power, then family, education, and work. And so then we decided, well, within each team, whoever had the highest energy that day should be the team leader. Not, you know, if you're a team captain and, and you know, you, you were up all night or something happened, you got in an accident on the way into work, your mind is not focused on work. Let's take the person with the highest energy for that day and just say, you're the team captain. There's no more prestige in it. There's no more, it's just more responsibility. And, uh, so that's how we focus on disruptors. We do it on an annual basis, and then we do it on a daily basis, and sometimes an hourly basis. Well, see, it's interesting. I, I looked at disruptors, meaning uh, people within the organization who are di- disrupting, uh, who are disruptive. That's what I. Uh, that's how I took it. I'm glad you explained it. Well, those people get terminated. <laughs> they don't follow the core values, and if they're not on the bus, they leave quickly. In fact, uh, there's a whole hiring system set up to even prevent disruptive people, negative personalities coming into the business. One of the key questions that we ask, each team hires as a final say within their their team. So if a new corporate salesperson comes in, the corporate sales team sits down, and they will have a cup of coffee, and they'll chat, and they'll ask about pictures of their children or their family just so they see if they have a family love, if there's a family relationship. And then they'll ask the drop-dead question, how many days do you wake up happy? And if it's not five or more, they don't get the job. The team just says, uh, okay, thank you, and uh, then they'll come out and they'll say, we don't want to hire that person. And uh, so being positive is a very important part, and uh, disruptive personalities usually start because of negativity, negative energy. What if you hire a person and for one reason or another they start to go down down in their positive, positiveness? What do you do in a case like that? We hired two brilliant ladies, uh, two brilliant people, a couple of uh, about a year and a half ago. They came from corporate America, and they had a corporate America bitterness about them. I might upset some people when I say this, but they were really good people. They just didn't know how to trust. And I think to be a great leader, you have to be a responsible leader, not a privileged, and you have to build trust, respect, and then love. And if you can get to those levels... So it could either be respect or trust is the first one. And I spent a lot of time earning their respect, then earning their trust. And at that point, they changed into becoming very positive. Uh, we also had a person that had been here, she just left a couple of weeks ago, and ran into a problem because she was a fabulous event designer, one of the best I've ever met in my life. But she was wanted to be at a level that our company was not at. She wanted to be selling Lamborghinis when we were selling 
you know, Corvettes or something. And we talked about not being happy, and she admitted it. And I said, well, let's find you a place where you can be happy. There's no sense to come in every day and not be happy. So she had a tremendous severance package, and I made some phone calls to some other people in my position in, in our community, and I said, this person's available. She's phenomenal. It's just not, we're not the right bus for her. She's got to find a different approach. And uh, she had a job offer two days later. So, you know, I still love that lady, and I still love, but, you know, it just wasn't the right fit. Fit is so important in the hiring process, don't you think? Yes. Absolutely agree. That's why we screen for skill, but we hire for attitude. We can always train people how to do things, but we can't change a, a personality. Well, um, uh, do you have children? And if so, are they in the business? Well, I hesitate to say that because of nepotism. Yes, the young man that came to my desk and said, change or else, that replaced me is my son, Tim. Oh, Okay. And he had uh, graduated, uh, he had been offered professional soccer contracts, and he had graduated from college with degrees in accounting and management, and he had been offered a fabulous job at a bank that he had also worked part-time through college. He worked at Tasty Catering when he'd be home, and he had also worked at a bank to learn the banking industry. And his point was, if if I didn't change, he wasn't going to waste his time here. He was going to go to the bank that offered him more responsibility and a better way of life. So he is the one that he has started some extremely successful businesses. And my daughter played professional soccer until she had retired because of injuries, then started the creative agency uh, that has won acclaim as being the authoritative creative agency in the catering and event planning world. Um, And she's got a staff of nine people. She co-founded it with the young lady, Jamie, who came to my desk. So Jamie and Tim came to my desk. And Jamie has her master's degree in integrative marketing communication, and Erin has hers in uh, marketing brand strategy. So they started a creative agency, and uh, that's worked out to be fabulous. So, yes, they're both in the business. They both uh, are CEOs of their business. I have an equity position in their businesses with my brothers, but they operate them. And you know what? They do better than I do on a bottom-line percentage. Uh, You sound proud of them. Uh, yeah, I'm proud of them, but, you know, Don, it's not just because of who their parents are. It's because they're part of about 140 people that work with us that I have the same kind of pride for. Everybody, Everybody's important. Everybody here is somebody, and our success is directly based on the fact that everybody is somebody and everybody contributes on a daily basis. Some just happen to be a company owner. We, we did other things. We started, we started real estate trusts and so other people could become owners that didn't have ideas and they could participate in trusts and we bought depressed property and depressed markets and they watched the value of the property increase with rental income and and then they would sell it off so we have probably 20 some 25 owners that work with us some some of our employees started a trucking company we have 30 trucks in our fleet and we rent probably 300 a year during peak times and so some of our Four members of a family that work for us started their own trucking business, buying trucks, leasing them back to us. And our capital company, Tui Capital, started lending them the money to buy the trucks. So I'm proud of everybody here, Don. Well, if you had advice to give our audience, what would it be? Uh, if, if you're a leader, and everybody in a company should be a leader, it's to remember that everybody is somebody. 
There's a great poem by Dr. Borders of the Wheat Street Baptist Church he wrote in 1959, and, and it ends by saying, I may be black, I may be brown, I might be white, I might be yellow. I added those last two just to make sure it's universal. But I must be respected, never neglected or rejected. I am somebody. I am God's child. And if we take that viewpoint when we work with others, and really that's the basis of emotional intelligence, but if we take that viewpoint in working with others, we find out that others have ceilings that uh, far above the, what we would perceive them to be. And in the eight companies that we did in our book, we did deep dive evidence-based research. It wasn't armchair philosophy. We found every one of those companies treated their employees with tremendous respect and dignity and honor and asked them about ideas. So most of the leaders, if not all the leaders, were servant leaders. And the, re and the results that they had were far above their competition in the market. So they were value-based businesses with high employee engagement that had superior results and how simple that is. Well, uh, the name of your book again? It's My Company 2, How Employee how entangled companies move beyond employee engagement for remarkable results. So how you entangle everybody in the organization, create attention for common values, vision, and mission, and the remarkable results that happened. And what we found in each one of these companies, from a construction company to a car wash company to a project management company to a manufacturing company to a hospital, what why did they win such tremendously recognized national awards, and what were the basis behind them? And not all of them, the only factor that was equal across the board was the focus on employee engagement. Well, um, I had a good question, but it went through, out, of, out of my mind. Um, what are, I know what it was. You've mentioned your companies. Uh, what do your companies do? Well, uh, people could find out by going to thomasjwalter.com, which is my website. But uh, one company is Tui Capital. It started as an employee assistance program. It turned into a capital company, so we fund new startups. Uh, we provide funds for our employees uh, should they have needs. Then we have uh, TF Process, which is a contract baker. It bakes cookies for airlines, and it bakes muffins for school districts. We have New Fork, which is a creative agency. It does marketing, uh, communications, search engine optimization, website design, etc. Uh, That's Caring, which is a gift company that gives back to the community. It does matching funds to uh, needy children's school uh, food programs. So it gives to school districts or to uh, food depositories to help children that don't have food on Saturday and Sunday. And then iMotorsports, which is an online retailer of um, motorcycles, used motorcycles. That's a national company. And uh, the Thought Board, which is a conglomeration uh, of consultants who are value-based that work in areas such as the great game of business, financial transparency, lecturing, et cetera. And uh, those are the major companies. Then there's real estate investment companies. What's your base company? A tasty catering is probably the one I spend the most time on. Tui yeah. Capital is the uh, one that I that I, I, spend I know. A lot um, of... I wanted to get in the the the, 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 ta the tasty company because you know you talk about all the others, but the, but it all started with that company. Tasty Catering is the Chicago's largest 
uh, corporate catering company. We do about 11,000 events a year, year in, year out, and we do everything from corporate work to mid-level social work. We don't do the high-end weddings, but we do. it's a complete catering company. Well, Tom, thank you for being with us. I know I learned a lot, and I hope our audience did as well. And you have to come back uh, later in the year or early next year and talk again. Anytime, Donna. It's, it's been an honor. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for the opportunity to be on your program. Small Business Digest Radio. Awesome. Thank you. Have a great day. Thank you, sir. You too. Bye-bye. Our guest tonight showed up at our office door recently, and she brought with her samples of her product, which I have to tell you are really terrific. And she has an unusual name. We're going to welcome Nicole Cardone to the program today, but we're going to ask her what her official title of her company is. Nicole, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. So what and is your title? My title, uh, I'm the co-founder and chief executive Sorbabe of Sorbabe's Gourmet Sorbet. So, okay, Sorbet, uh, you're the chief Sorbabe, S-O-R-B-A-B-E, <laughs> of That's right. Gourmet Sorbabe, S-O-R-B-E-T, mm-hmm. which I, I happen to think is one of the cleverest titles I've come across in a long time. Well, thank you. I wish I could take credit for it, but my partner and I were coined the Sorbabes. When we began this venture, we were producing in an ice cream kitchen in the middle of the night. And when we would come in and the ice cream guys would leave, they would say, oh, the Sorbabes are coming. And uh, it kind of just stuck after that. So um, I'm glad people uh, find it amusing. We thought it was cute. Well, I, I, it it is probably... Uh, uh, fairly unique in the industry. But what is your product? So we make a sorbet, which is a water-based frozen dessert. For the people who um, are unaware, there are sherbets that also contain dairy. But sorbet is water-based, so it's dairy-free. It's vegan. Um, but what we do to make it different and special is that we use whole food ingredients, and we really also embrace the farm-to-table movement. So um, we take a lot of farm-fresh ingredients and blend them with water. But some of our sorbets are not just made with fruit. We also make them with whole nuts. And our whole nut sorbets, like the pistachio with salted caramel, are incredibly rich and creamy just by the nature of the produce itself. We don't add any um, dairy alternatives to make it ice cream-like. It just comes out that way. So it's a naturally healthier alternative to ice cream. And then on top of that being unique in itself, we also fold in chunky toppings. So um, our sorbets are have also been coined, we've been coined the Ben and Jerry's of sorbet because we mix in these chunky toppings. So you have this texture with the sorbet that is completely um, unique in the space as well. Well, how did you get into this business? Well, I came to New York. I'm originally from Alaska. And I came to New York determined to go to Wall Street, and I was going to make my mark in the investment banking world. And after a few years of working in that and realizing that I was never going to see the daylight because I was stuck in a cubicle for 16 hours a day, 
um, my husband and I decided to have children. And with the birth of my first daughter, I realized that I wanted to spend more time at home. And I thought that the food industry was something that had always been interesting to me. It was sort of calling me. And I looked at the market and I realized that the sorbet, I used to make sorbet in college as well, just sort of for fun from the farmer's market. And I realized that there was nothing similar to what I was doing at home on the shelf. You had lemon, mango, and raspberry sorbet. Nothing's changed in 20 years. You had all these great artisanal ice creams coming out. So I thought that I would try my hand at it. And because I didn't have a chef background, I called upon Chef Deborah Gorman. Uh, she was a family friend. And she came on board with me, and we tested the market in 2012, going to some farmer's markets and sampling our product. Um, and we developed a bit of a following, and it was, it was exciting because we weren't expecting such great feedback. And in the summer of 2013, we launched Sorbet Gourmet Sorbet together. Well, you launched it. And, and mm-hmm. uh, are you still doing it at night in the in the kitchen or? <laughs> no, fortunately, we have um, progressed far beyond the days of producing ourselves with a small batch freezer in the middle of the night. Um, we have a uh, co-packing facility that we use um, that allows us to scale our production to meet our uh, sales requirements, which have been growing, fortunately, uh, month by month and year by year. So it's been uh, wonderful. Well, we met you at the Fancy Food Show, um, mm-hmm. and, and um, uh, we, like, we like the product. Uh, that's one of the reasons why you're on the show. Um, but um, what, are, what were some of the initial challenges that you faced, and how did you overcome them? Wow, there are so many. Uh, first and foremost, I would have to say that not coming from a consumer product background, my partner or I, we were not aware at the challenges just in the sub-zero frozen space altogether. Consumer products are difficult. Sub-zero frozen where we are is probably the most difficult space. So um, learning about the challenges of logistics, of um, you know the expense of real estate in stores, storage, all of that was uh, very new to us. But I would have to say that overall the biggest challenges that we've faced is and I think all small businesses, especially, again, in consumer products, will face this, you, there's really no bridge to the gap between small batch production and large-scale commercial production. You know, we go from buying a 50-pound bucket of raspberries to having to buy literally a truckload full of raspberries um, to get an economy of scale at, at all. I mean, you could buy a half a truckload of raspberries and still pay the same 50-pound bucket price. So trying to get um, enough capital together, uh, you know, before you can make that jump is, is incredibly difficult, especially because you want to make sure that you are insured the sales before you create the inventory. So we found that to be uh, very, very challenging as we grow so, in scale. How did you solve it? Well, we... We just peddled the small amounts as much as we could. We did lots and lots of small production runs that were very expensive. You know, fortunately, we were able to launch in a very affluent area of New York. We, we launched in the Hamptons, and um, their summer crowd supported the price point that we needed to get on our product to help us make it through that period. And then once we had done that and established ourselves, we were able to then 
grow our volumes a lot more and get our pricing down. So now we're in, a, in, a, in an acceptable range for our product. But if we hadn't have, have launched in an area that we knew could afford our product at the time, uh, it definitely would not have worked. Well, how did you – well, first of all, what is the acceptable price point in your you product? Know, <laughs> and that's a good question. It's definitely changing. You know, we get we get pulled on both sides because, you know, the customer wants a high percentage of fruit and nut content in the product. Um, they want it to be organic. They want it to be non-GMO. They want all these things, but they don't want to pay more than what they see Ben & Jerry selling for at, you know, three ninety nine a pint. Unfortunately, that's just not quality ingredients. That's not, you know, we don't have the same production capacity. So, um but on the good side, we do have a lot of artisanal brands that are on the shelf now, especially, you know, some of these really high-end gourmet brands that bring some pints up to $13 a pint. So it helps us because people are starting to become more accepting of higher-priced gourmet small-batch products. So we launched selling at $12 a pint, and now we are selling as low as $5.99 and two for 10 in some stores. So it really, you know, the the challenge was getting enough demand to feel confident enough to put that money up front to build the inventory to to then get our pricing down. And that's really what, what we've seen. And we're still getting pushed back on the pricing, which I find amusing because, again, you know, consumers want a very high-quality product, but they don't really understand what goes into it. And, you know, I understand not wanting to pay high prices for a pint of ice cream. It goes pretty quick. So... It's still a challenge, and I think it will be going forward. But how did you come up with the idea of going out to the Hamptons and selling it? It was a happy accident. I have to say we got fortunate. My husband was born and raised in Sag Harbor. So he had been there for 40-plus years. His family was there. He grew up out there. So all the local vendors of all the stores, we knew all of them already. Um, so I, you know, I was living out there full-time. And I, it was just an easy thing for me. And also the Hamptons, because everything's so close together, I could literally deliver myself, because we didn't have a distributor, we didn't have employees, I could deliver myself to all of these stores. So that's what I would do. I would just get in my car, you know, t- two days a week, and I would pack up big coolers with dry ice, and I would deliver in this small little area of the Hamptons. And um, and we also did the farmer's markets, which really helped us promote. And then we did events. And the events, you know, it, that area is just so condensed with people for a period of time. It allows you to get the attention of people that would be normally spread out all over the country or New York and, and Connecticut and wherever else they go to at the other times of the year. So, again, it was just a happy accident that my husband happened to be from Sag Harbor, so I was allowed into that community very easily. Okay. Now, uh, you've brought up several, uh, several questions. How did you manage to get into stores? That's a, that's one our audience always asks. How did you... <laughs> it was a tenacious sales incentive on my part. I literally put sorbet, I would drag around this heavy cooler, I would dry ice, and I would walk into every single store myself, and I would just sell the product. I mean, I think that the biggest challenge was getting over this fear of rejection because, you know, that has got to be what holds a lot of people back. And I, and I just want to say that, you never know unless you do it, 
and you have to go in, and you will find that so many small shop owners, especially, I mean, I'm not going into the big chain stores. That's a whole different corporate atmosphere. When you're selling a product that's new, you go to these smaller stores. They're usually owned by families, and they're just wonderful. My, my experience has been, you know, very positive going into these stores, even when I didn't know the person I was going in to speak to. And I think that when we did get a no, part of that, experience was also just sort of shrugging it off and being like, okay, well, if you don't understand why this is special, soon you'll understand. Maybe you'll order it next year. You know, and just leaving it at that and not taking it personally. You know, there's a lot of things that go into curating what a store has to offer, and you don't really know what the customer at that store is interested in necessarily. So it really is about swallowing your pride and not having, um, not taking things too personally and just and being brave and just going in there and showing your product. You should be proud of what you're doing, so be proud to show it off, be proud to sell it. Well, uh, when you showed up on our, uh, we met you at the Fancy Food Show, you were, mm-hmm. you were pregnant. How many children do you have now? <laughs> I have two little ones running around and another one on the way in about four weeks. Mm. And, uh, you're, you say you're originally from Alaska? Yes. And where did you go to school? Um, well, I was born and raised in Alaska, and when I decided to go to college, I came straight to New York. So I went to Pace University downtown and, uh, and graduated there with a degree in finance and went straight to work at J.P. Morgan um, in their underwriting division oh. for an investment bank. <laughs> All right. Um, which do you prefer, the corporate world or what you're doing now? Oh, by far what I'm doing now. It's so much more rewarding. You know, although the challenges are astronomical, and I have to say that I've always been a hard worker my whole life. I'm I'm sort of manic that way and in the way that I work, and that's why I've always been successful in my careers, you know, that I've had. But at the end of the day, when it comes to running your own business, expect to work harder than you've ever thought was possible. Um, I, I continue to amaze myself at all the things I can do, especially now with all the, the kids and everyone keeps saying, how do you do it? And I just think to myself, well, you know, I just don't take no for an answer. I just, if anything, I sacrifice sleep. <laughs> but, you know, things got to get done and that's it. I'm not going to give up on my kids. I'm not going to give up on my business. And, and that's just the way it goes. Well, well, two questions. How do you divide your work with your partner? What does she do and what do you do? Uh, that's a great question, you know, and this is something that we have found to be very unique for us, and it, it comes down to our skill set. Deborah is a chef. She is a fantastic chef, and she also has a background in production and, um, and uh, art direction, things like that. But she does a lot. She did our label design. She handles all of the production, all the sourcing of the ingredients, all of the recipes and that that area. I handle more of the business side, more of the accounting, more of the sales, and we really divide and conquer. And because our skill sets are so different, we're very aware when any task comes to our desk whose responsibility it should be. And also, she and I have very similar work ethics. So I never have to look over my shoulder and ask her, did you get that done? Because she always gets it done. And I always get it done, too. So we, we just, you know, full speed ahead together and are able to truly lean on each other. And that has been probably, I have to say, our number one secret to the success we've gained so far. Well, what does your husband do, and how does he feel about all this? <laughs> 
Well, he, when I first told him that I wanted to leave the corporate world and go and make sorbet, his response to me was a completely goofy face saying, you think you're going to make a million dollars selling sorbet? And it did. It sounded a little crazy, but I was, you know, I had in my head this idea, and I said, yeah. I was like, maybe I can. And um, he, so he worked in finance as well. We both met, um, you know, in the the banking world on Wall Street, lots of mutual friends. And so he uh, he does private wealth management for Barclays right now. And he's also building his book of business. I mean, he just moved in with this Barclays group. So he's also working at the same level I am to build a business. And hopefully, you know, children are young now, but when they're older, they'll be able to enjoy, you know, the fruits of our labor. But it's very difficult. Um, you know, he's supportive as much as he possibly can be. And, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of faith. So, well, what, what business is he building? He's building, well, he does private wealth management. So oh. he works to bring in clients to the Barclays family where they can help manage their assets. Oh. So it's, um, it's sales as well, pretty much. He and I both fortunately are good at sales, and I think in anything that you do, Sales is a big part of it. Whether you think you're doing technical sales or not, sales is always a part of of, uh, of most successful businesses. Well, you're, you're one of the most um, uh, successful salespeople I met. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> well, no, um, you know, we, the, uh, for the if the audience doesn't know, the Fancy Food Show covers um, a humongous amount of space at the Javits Center in New York in July and in San Francisco in, in uh, January. And it, it is a humongous place. And for people like me who cover it, it um, you're, you're meeting literally hundreds of people. In, in, um, and uh, uh, Ms. Nardone really uh, stood out. Nicole, uh, um, both uh, my other editor and I remembered her. And after tasting her uh, sorbet, we will definitely remember her. Um, uh, she gave us samples, and they were out of this world. Uh, how that, how's that for a plug for you? Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. It means a lot. You know, it's easy to sell something that you're so proud of, and I really am. I'm so proud of the product, and I, I say this all the time. I can be in the worst mood ever. I can be tired, grumpy, you name it. And if I have a you know a job to go out and give samples to people, the second people start tasting the sorbet and I get the responses, I mean, it just completely turns my day around. Everyone is incredibly, incredibly positive, and the feedback that I get, really, it just lifts me up. And um, like I said, when you're selling something that you're proud of, it, it really makes it easy. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, what are your plans for the future? Oh, gosh. Well, um, Deborah and I always joke, nation domination. <laughs> but, you know, ultimately our goal is to get our sorbet into the mouth of as many people as possible because the product really sells itself. Uh, you've really never tasted sorbet like this, and that's sort of our tagline. Um, and so we'd like to be a nationwide brand one day. Um, you know, again, that comes with multiple challenges that, you know, and questions that we don't even know we don't know yet. Um, because it is all very new to us, but we're you know we're we're tenacious, and I believe that we're smart enough to be able to weather the bad decisions that we make 
and make enough good decisions to keep us going. Um, and again, it's really, you know, when it comes to small business, and I think everyone will find this, especially, again, in consumer products, because this is what I know now, is fundraising, you know, and making sure that you have enough money to support you through all your different stages of growth. And then once you get to a level where you're competing with the really big guys, you know, then that's like a whole, that's a whole other ballgame. It's a, it's a good problem to have, but you'd be lucky to get there. So that's what we're trying to do. Well, um one thing, you've you got a great name, Gourmet Sorbet. Uh, I'm, I'm surprised someone hasn't picked that one up yet. <laughs> I was surprised, too. I have GourmetSorbet.com. I mean, it rhymes. And we were actually going to go with Gourmet Sorbet, and then we were advised by our attorneys that it was not a trademarkable name because it was more of a description. And we fought tooth and nail against the Sorbet idea because we didn't want to be known as Initially, I think babe, people think of a buxom blonde or something like that, and we were much more about health and wellness and beauty from women from the inside out. You know, you are what you eat, be a sore babe, that idea. And that's how we really ended up coming back around to the sore babe name before it was just this sort of um, nickname that we had. And, uh, and now we really embrace it, and I think it's been a lot of fun. We have fun with it. You know, you saw my sore baby bump T-shirt, <laughs> and I've been getting requests for that from people, so... You know, well, we're having well, fun with well, it. Wait, wait, wait. Tell tell people what was on your T-shirt. Oh, yeah. So I have a you know a, an eight-month pregnant belly, and I, I like to joke that I can't hide it anymore, so I decided to flaunt it. And I wore our shirt, which is the logo with a, a unicone, and it says things for babe, like most of our shirts say. Mine said for baby bump. <laughs> and it got <laughs> a lot of attention. It was very cute. So I'm glad people liked it. Well, you seem to have a lot of creative ideas. Um, how do you come up with these ideas? I mean, I'd love to say that, you know, I think I'm a creative person naturally, but I, I don't know. I think that the brand, one of the biggest challenges, obviously, for any company is creating a brand that is rememberable. People will automatically remember it. And we had a little bit of help from the Miami Ad School. We went there and they designed our logo, which is this unicone. It's a symbol. And when we saw it, we weren't sure if we loved it or hated it. But when we got home at the end of the night and we were thinking of our options, it was the only one we remembered. And we said, you know what, I like that. I like that you remember it. It's a symbol. You don't have to look at it, figure out how to pronounce the name of the company, remember the name. You just remember that symbol. So that's really what got it started. And then the name Sorbabe, which, again, we can't take credit for that either. Someone had coined us the Sorbabes. But... All these things organically came together, and we started building the brand around that and really having a strong conviction of our direction and the culture that we wanted to create within our company. You know, we really believe that you need to be beautiful from the inside out first. You know, you need to be kind and genuine and honest, and that's how we feel we present our brand. Um, you know, we put the best ingredients in there. We're completely honest. And, you know, we want women to feel good, and men too, but... Women tend to gravitate a little more towards the Sorbet brand. We want mm -hmm. them to feel good about themselves. And, you know, after having my children, I really followed this health and wellness lifestyle much more than the, you know, traditional diet. And it just made me thinner, healthier. I felt better, and I felt better about myself. And I want other women to feel that way, too. There's not a lot of options in the ice cream world if you're following a health and wellness lifestyle. And now there is something that they can choose from and, and feel good about eating and not feel guilty. Well, again, the n name of your website? 
gourmetsorbet.com. But if you also look up sorbabes.com, um, it will direct you to the site as well. So can't go wrong. Well, we want you to come back uh, in a few months after the babies uh, um, uh, come, etc., and tell us how you're doing. I would love to. I'd love to report up on all of the leads that we got at the Fancy Food Show and let you know how that's going. I do believe that by this time next year we will have a national presence, which I'm very excited to report. And we are coming out with some fantastic fall flavors that I would love to drop by and give you more samples of. So I will I take them. I will take them. We will definitely <laughs> take them uh, because they're wonderful. Um, but let me uh, one more thing that I want to point out to our audience. Uh, you must follow up on the leads at, at events like that. Um, I, I, I must have handed out a hundred cards at the show, and I and I and I will tell you, I will get less than ten people that will follow up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, um, Nicole followed up. Um, by God, she bombarded us. Anyway, <laughs> um, and and look what it got her. So I, I always advise our audience, and, and I'm always surprised how so, so few people follow up on leads. So anyway, uh, uh, Nicole, yes. good good luck on the baby, um, and uh, come back again soon, huh? Absolutely. I look forward to it. Thank you so Have much. Have a nice day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. That was a fabulous interview. We're waiting uh, right now for our next guest, who is a real change of pace from that. So if you, uh, if the audience will bear with me, he'll be right with us after this brief. Want to know more about health savings accounts for your company or yourself? Go to 2hsa.com and get a free employer's primer. Health savings accounts are a cost-effective way of offering health care benefits to your employees and yourself. HSAs build retirement funds for your employees, improve morale, and reduce your health care benefit costs. For a free employer guide to HSAs, go to 2hsa.com. That's 2hsa.com. back live here. Francesco is going to be right uh, with us, and we'll continue this program, which I, I hope the, this audience is enjoying. Uh, if you'd like to be on the program, uh, write me at info at smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusiness.net. And here is Francesco. Hello? Uh, how are you doing, Francesco? Oh, I'm good. I'm sorry. I was having a little phone problem. I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no you, you, uh, I just want to tell our audience, if you want to be on or know someone that should be on this program, email me at info at Small Business Digest. Uh, Francesco, welcome to the program. Thank you uh, very much. You're here because uh, you've written a New York Times bestseller, a book bestseller, and you're a really interesting character, and you're also Italian-American, which in my uh, book... Uh, um, <laughs> well, I am only half, despite despite the name. Uh, what's the other half? Uh, Portuguese. Really? So I'd probably fill whatever... That will probably be the one time you have Portuguese on the radio. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, We've actually had a couple of Portuguese 
on there. I'm from the Ironbound section of Newark. Oh, yes, then you have. I'm sorry? I said then you have had Portuguese. That is true. Right. Um, for, for our audience that doesn't know, I come from the Ironbound section of Newark, which was progressively first uh, German, then Irish, then Italian, and, and now is uh, predominantly Portuguese and is almost world famous for its Portuguese uh, cuisine. So we've inv- invited Francesco on the program because he, he's written uh, one New York Times bestseller, and tell the audience the name of that one. It's I Could Pee on This and Other Poems by Cats. Well, uh, and <laughs> it, it is, by, by the way, a very, very funny, interesting, and uh, a thought-provoking book. Thank you very and, much. Uh, now, Francesco, how do you pronounce your last name uh, so the audience will get it right? Being named Mazzella, I often get Mazzola, so uh, <laughs> I don't want to butcher your name. No, no problem. As I said, it took me to it took me about a good six or seven years to get it right as well. It's uh, Francesco Marchuliano. And, and will you spell it out for our audience? Of course, it's M A R C I U L I A N O. So it, it has it has about half the alphabet there, at least <laughs> all the vowels. Um, yes, almost so, all. You know, uh, our audience is small businesses, and uh, as they've learned, a lot of small business owners and uh, others have uh, written books, and uh, there's an old saying, everybody has at least one book in them. Right. But uh, what made you decide? First, tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to write a book. Um, I was an English major, which means, you know, intermittently employed for a little while. I graduated from Duke, and then I did mostly copywriting for a while. I wrote copy uh, marketing, you know, for uh, New York Times and The Economist and Business Week. Actually, I was a copy supervisor at Business Week for, for a few years. And during that time, I started writing a syndicated comic strip, which I still do now, called Sally Forth. So um, so I was doing that for a while, and but I had wanted to try my hand at, at writing humor books. I always wanted to do that. That was sort of the bucket list I wrote when I was 10 years old, which is an early time to maybe write a bucket list. But So that it came about, and the, um, the cats seemed natural because I had grown up with cats. I had grown up with cats, well, with dogs, birds, turtles. There were quite a few animals in the house. Where did and, you grow um, up with- I had I had two cats for 17 years, and when the second one passed away, I was very sad. I, you know, I don't know if people who don't have pets, you know, don't realize, but when a pet does pass away, it it is a very very sad occasion. And in order to deal with it, you know, for myself to come, I started writing poems in the cat's voice, and I didn't want it to be like cutesy, adorable, fuzzy poems because you know the world doesn't need more of that. So I started writing humor poems, and I just kept collecting them, thinking, no one wants to see this. And this is where it kind of goes. And you can cut me off. If I am rambling, please say that's enough from you. No, um, keep going. This program <laughs> is for you to talk, not me. Oh, thank you. And um, so, I mean, it was sort of like, you know, I guess in small business, it's sort of, you know, there's that one moment that sort of creates the idea. This, you know, was out of a sad thing. But it made me create this, and then, of course, I thought, well, you know, this is just for me. 
And then I guess, you know, you've heard mentioned small business. There's the out-of-left-field opportunity that presents itself or, you know, something that could become an opportunity, depending how you wish to look at it. And oddly enough, that for me was um, when Charlie Sheen had a mental breakdown or very public kind of weird thing. Several years ago, Charlie Sheen started acting very weird. And he did a radio interview, and he just had all these odd sayings. And I took those sayings, and I put it to photos of cats, because that's what a mature individual does in his spare time. And I posted them on my site, and in two days I got a million and a half hits. And the New York Times wrote about it, and Today Show wrote about it. What I'm saying it was it must have been a remarkably slow news period. But uh, I got a lot of coverage from it, and I thought, well, maybe it's true. The Internet is 98% cat, and the other 2% going, what's with all the cats? So I posted some of the poems on the site. I got a very good response, and then I gave it to my agent, and he shopped it around. And now here we are. <laughs> so now, uh, I don't know if you're familiar, but the, uh, Don Markey uh, many years ago wrote about uh, uh, Archibald and Mahidabel. Mahidabel was Are you familiar with it? This, I mean, these are, these are poems. Is that the cat with the no tail that he used to do the illustrations for, or am I thinking someone else? You're thinking someone else. Oh, okay, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, Archib uh, Archibald was a cat, and Mahidabel was a cockroach. Oh. And, <laughs> and uh, uh, the cockroach, since he could never hold down the uh, uh, capital uh, part of the typewriter, wrote everything in lowercase. And what started almost exactly the same way, though not with the Charlie Sheen, he started started writing them in the old New York Post, uh, and they started publishing them, and uh, ended up with four books. That's fantastic. Uh, my gener your generation doesn't know him, but uh, he, he. When I read your book, uh, what immediately came to mind was Archibald and Mahidabel. Well, and, well, I, it sounds like a, a good, a very good association. So thank you. <laughs> Well, for I need to look my that generation, I'm a much. lot older than you. Um, I'm, I'm uh, not you know, so young. It was the, I'm sorry? <laughs> I said, I'm not so young. Well, uh, uh, as I always tell my audience, I'm 71, so the, you can figure it out from there. But uh, anyway, uh, uh, it, 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 it was a great book. And when I read your book, I just felt uh, uh, very, very much of a kinship. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I need to look those up. Thank you. Thank you for mentioning them. Well, um, but you now, uh, so we can we can justify having you on the program. Uh, you and I both know writing is a tough uh, uh, world. Right. How do you, what advice would you give a, a small business owner or anybody that's listening um, about writing? Well, I mean, it, Writing is something, I think, for people who do it, they have to do it. I'm not saying you have to do it as a job. You don't have to do it professionally as a job, but I think it's just this compulsion to write, and I think that's what drives people to eventually maybe get published. You, this, is how you can, um, this is how you can interpret the world. This is how you interact with the world. This is how you synthesize whatever you learn through it is through writing. And that's what I do. I mean, you know, I, I illustrate and I write, and this is how I can make sense of the world, and this is how I communicate back. 
And um, so it, it is a drive. It is certainly a need. And I think with any small business owner who has an idea, who has a compulsion that they want to do something, it, it's very much along those same lines. You just want to do it. And, of course, that doesn't necessarily translate into it gets done because, you know, there are many factors, many that are not always in one's control. But it is the drive to, as I said, I was copywriting. I worked in offices for a long time. And it is the drive to make that time when you can, those, those weekends, or when you can do it at the office when no one's looking, you know, to do that. And, um, <clears throat> but it really is almost a need to do it. And I think that's what, that's important. I think anyone who's going to do a small business, I'm sure that's very much the case, you know, they need to. They, they don't see the other option of not doing it. Sometimes things get in the way. Sometimes it's difficult. But there's always that desire, and I think it will translate in some fashion, and that's what this was. And I know it's weird to say, I had this driving desire, and then I wrote the Cat Pee book. But, you know, I did want to be a humor writer. I wanted to be a published humor writer. I wanted to be a cartoonist, so I kept submitting comic strips for 10 years until I got it because the idea of no wasn't the final no. And it couldn't be because this is what I wanted to do. And it's the same thing with writing. It, the, the no is not a final no. As long as you can do it, as long as it's feasible, and as long as you, you know, have that desire, I think that's what it is. There are obstacles, but I don't think, you know, you can't see them as walls, if that makes sense. It absolutely does. It goes for small business. Uh, there's an old saying, uh, uh, the sale begins when the customer says no. Yes, uh, I've heard that. And uh, I, I believe in a very... Uh, uh, very strongly, and I notice uh, small businesses launch uh, uh, leaders launch their business. It's like jumping off a cliff, hoping somebody builds a swimming pool before they land. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. Well, and what's the name of your new book? The name of my new book, and this is the kitten version. So it's um, so you could maybe it's the prequel, I guess, instead of the sequel. It's I need my mommy, and the need is K-N-E-A-D, because that's what kittens do with their paws. So it's I need my mommy and other poems by kittens. So um, so this one is, um, you know, the, some of the poems are very energetic, some of them are inquisitive. It's very much a kitten and just how full of energy they can be. Well, let and me also them trying to figure out the world, and you know, because they just entered it, so trying to make sense of it all. Well, if, when they succeed, let me know. Oh, thank you. It comes out on Tuesday. It comes out this Tuesday, August 5th. Well, that's great. That's thank great you. news. Uh, but uh, let me ask, do, do you, uh, did you get another cat? I am getting, a, I'm going to Portugal. See, we tied in the Portugal thing because I have family there. Uh, Friday, actually. And when I come back, I am getting another cat. I took some time off because it was a morning period. I didn't want to get a cat right away because then I would have compared the cats. But now I'm ready, and I'll get a cat or two, depending on how it works out, which, you know, is great for a New York City apartment. Um, what I would love to get is a cat and a dog, but that's, that's just not feasible in Manhattan. But, uh, yeah, so when, when I come back, I'm going to get a kitten, and I'm very happy about that. <laughs> well, what advice would you give a, a, a small business owner or anybody about starting to write? Um, I mean, in addition to basically just to feel you need to, it's 
I think it starts off with the fact that just jot ideas down. I think a lot of people freeze up because they look at the computer and go, what am I going to write? They think it needs to come out as a cohesive whole initially, has to come out as this solid piece. And that's not the case at all. I, I do most of my writing not seeing it to computer. I walk about six to eight miles a day, and that's how I write. I have the notepad function on my iPod. There's a thing called Evernote that you can do on, on an iPhone and an iPad. Uh, there's always pen and, you know, there's always good old pen and pad, which I always carry along. And I, I write outside a lot because it does, uh, you, you see things, your mind's a little freer than when you're staring at the computer. But I think what it comes down to is just start writing down ideas. You don't have to write down even complete sentences. But if you have an idea, just start fleshing it out. And I think then it will start to talk to you and you'll realize how it can grow and what you can do. You know, it's feeling out. I'm sure in a small business the idea is, Check the market, you know, see, you know, if you want to do that. But if you have a story that isn't there and you think it's viable, certainly write that. But it's, you know, it's feeling out, doing it in small steps at first, writing down ideas, jotting down. And I think that's an easier approach to writing than going, I'm going to sit on the computer and I have to write three pages today. Sometimes you can, but if you're just starting out, just start jotting down ideas, see how they connect to one another, see, you know, read, read a ton of other books, like in small business, study other businesses, you know, uh, see, see what it is. And then, you know, see that will inspire, that will bring new ideas, that may come up with ideas that haven't happened before, something that will challenge another idea. But it's, it's all these steps. It doesn't come out whole, and I think that's what freezes people. So if you can just start, just just freeform, you know, just write down stuff, I think is the best way to begin. And the name of your book again? Uh, the book that comes out on Tuesday is I Need My Mommy and Other Poems by Kittens. And it'll be the book with three adorable kittens on the cover. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Francesco, I'm really glad you came uh, and joined us t tonight. I, am uh, I always like uh, having uh, fellow writers on the program. Having been a newsman all this all these years, uh, and we also share a common thing. I worked for Business Week too many years ago. Oh wow! Yeah, it's uh, now it's a Bloomberg Business Week. Yes, uh, uh, us ex McGraw Hillers always feel uh, a little solidarity. <laughs> I'm sorry. I said solidarity. Good old twelve twenty one on on Sixth Avenue on Avenue of the Americas. You you have it. You have it. Um, <laughs> Uh, when you come back, uh, give us a call again, and uh, we'll talk. I'd love to sit down and have another conversation with you. That would be great. I would love that. And thank you very much. This has been fantastic. Um, and you've been very patient. Oh, please. You, you do not have to say that at all. It, it was a matter of minutes. It was not a problem at all. We'll talk to you soon, and have great, good luck with, with your, your new uh, uh, book. Thank you very much, and you have a great night. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening tonight. All of our guests are invited because they offer actionable advice to our audience. They do not pay to join us, but rather demonstrate their capacity for helping our audience add profits. Thank you for listening, and we'll be here again next week with other experts to talk about ways to improve your profit picture. Remember, we're here every week at blogtalkradio.com slash smallbusinessdigest. If you like what you heard today, tell others about our efforts. If you'd like to be a guest or suggest topics for future hours, email me at info at 
smallbusinessdigest.net. That's info at smallbusinessdigest.net. We would also like to remind listeners that besides our radio efforts, Small Business Digest comes to you via the web, through our video channel, and in our magazine. You can subscribe for any or all of these by going to smallbusinessdigest.net. That's smallbusinessdigest.net. Thank you, and have a good day.